Uh, well, good evening. Welcome back to uh, Centerpoint. Um, if, you, if you enter through that door, do you have an outline for tonight? There are outlines over there. Um, it should read Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 8. So everyone has got that. Okay. Um, I was handed a fortune cookie just a few minutes ago, and inside it read, Fortune and chance are heathen terms that ought not to be named among the pious. John Calvin. What are the chances of getting that in a fortune cookie? know where that came from. Um, I, I was going to leave on the table and, and, and then had cold feet because I wasn't sure about how we were going to collect them. Uh, little cards. It, uh, we need questions for two weeks from tonight uh, because it's going to be question and answer time. Actually, I'm going to allow you to ask some questions tonight, but, but uh, two weeks tonight, it's going to be a, a Q&A and it's... Uh, it's, it's meant to focus on what we've been studying this, this semester, but as I, I know you too well, that you're going to ask, you know, are there dogs in heaven or something uh, that has absolutely nothing to do with the course. Um, there are several ways that you can do that, and you can go, uh, you can go to um, the fptheologyschool.com, which is the, the website... Right, for Centerpoint, for this, uh, for this semester, you can go to our own website and find your way, the church website, and find your way to the School of Theology website. You can tweet. Now, how many of you actually tweet? Dr. Folks, are you a tweeter? No. Uh, how, many, how many have a Twitter account in the room? A, a few. Um, well, you can tweet to at... DWH Thomas. Now, if, you're, if you know what this means, you can use the hashtag FPTSQA, which is, which is First Presbyterian... What is that? First Presbyterian <laughs> Theology School Questions and Answers, I guess. Something like that. FPTSQA. But how many of you actually know what a hashtag is? It's not what you get with your biscuit at McDonald's in the drive-thru. This is something else. Or you can go to our Facebook account, uh, facebook.com, and again, it's FP Theology School, right? So there are all sorts, or you can get an old-fashioned piece of card and write down your question. So I'm going to have these cards uh, available here, which uh, Anne is going to unwrap the cellophane uh, from. And if you want to, uh, to ask a question, one that just occurs to you this evening, then, then find Anne Matthias. She'll give you a card. She may even give you a pen. <laughs> now, uh, tonight uh, the, the topic was meant to be hypostatic union, and we will have something to say about the hypostatic union in, in a minute. However, it's been one of those days uh, where... Where, well, I won't tell you all of the stuff I've been doing today, but um, I, I thought it would be useful to actually look at our own confession of faith, uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, the confession of faith that um, ministers here at the church subscribe to, uh, actually, actually repeat some, some vows concerning at a presbytery, uh, our elders, uh, office bearers, uh, uh, give allegiance to the Westminster Confession of Faith. And I thought we'd look at one of the chapters, chapter 8. This is a chapter uh, about Christ. Uh, it's a chapter that's not just about the person of Christ, uh, but it's also a chapter about the work of Christ. And we'll be looking at the work of Christ uh, next spring uh, in February, March, and April of, uh, of next year. So we'll be looking at the atonement uh, and the work of Christ then. Um, but this chapter, the eighth chapter, has a number of things to say about the person of Christ. And it doesn't 
um, actually do so uh, in um, a sequential order. Uh, so I've got sections 1, 2, 3, and 7 uh, in bold because those particular sections are sections about uh, the person of Christ and the other sections which we won't be looking at tonight are, are actually about the work of Christ and I thought I'd walk through um, the Westminster Confession uh, with you this is of course is a, a document um, uh, brought about in uh, 1645 at least the assembly was first called in 1643 uh, and uh, by 1645 um, the confession of faith uh, had been uh, written uh, the story as to how the Westminster Confession of Faith comes into being is in itself a fascinating uh, and, and lengthy story uh, something in the region of 200 or so delegates uh, they, were, they were made up of uh, ministers uh, and, and lay folk and some parliamentary folk uh, and there were scribes, secretaries uh, and so on uh, about 200 of them only, only about 100 to maybe 120 ever actually turned up uh, for, the, for the assembly it was held of course in London uh, in the, in, uh, in uh, the cathedral or just across the road from the Houses of Parliament in the Jerusalem uh, chamber uh, of uh, Westminster Abbey and uh, um, it, it, was a, it was quite a thing to if you lived say in the north of Scotland or if you lived as, as some representatives came uh, or if you lived in Ireland for example Archbishop Usher was a delegate, at least on paper he was a delegate to the Westminster Assembly, but he lived in Ireland, he was an archbishop, uh, you were being asked to go to London in the middle of the 17th century, you couldn't just you know, catch JetBlue and, and fly to, uh, to London and say to your wife and family, look I'm going to be away for a couple of days. They had no idea how long it was going to last, and actually it lasted in the end about eight years. And then now, it, the, the attendance whittled away uh, as, as the years went, uh, went by. But about 120 of them met. They met in committees. Uh, and uh, there were grand committees and smaller committees. And then they met in a joint session in the afternoon. And uh, various, various attempts. Uh, one committee would be given this chapter. And another committee would be given another chapter. Uh, different different doctrines, one particular committee was given uh, the chapter on Christology, uh, on Christ the Mediator, chapter 8. Uh, and they would come up, I mean, I mean how do you go about uh, writing a confession of faith about all the things that we need to believe about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done? Do you start from scratch? Do you reinvent the wheel? Uh, do, you, do you sort of meet together and assume that no one has ever done anything like this ever before and you're the first person ever, uh, the first uh, assembly ever to come up with a confession of faith. Well, the 16th uh, and early 17th century uh, were full of confessions of faith. Uh, there are probably in the region of a thousand different catechisms uh, from the time, say, of Martin Luther up until the middle uh, late 17th century uh, es estimates are that there are roughly around a thousand or more catechisms many many different uh, confessions uh, representing different traditions uh, Lutheran and, and Calvinistic and, and Continental Reformed and, and, and so on and, and that's all by way of saying that of course you don't reinvent the wheel you, you, you are very conscious of other attempts to do so that the church have viewed as orthodox and biblical. And among those things are things like the creeds of the early church, one of which we looked at last week, the Chalcedonian Creed of uh, 451 AD. Now a creed, at least in theory, a creed is a statement of the Catholic Church, Catholic with a small c, universal church. And so, so those, those folk who came together to put together a creed were representing the entire church. It wasn't, it wasn't like the Westminster Confession, which was actually representing some Anglicans and Congregationalists and Presbyterians. 
but 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 only only a certain section of the church. A creed was was representative of the entire church, the church universal. So something like the Chalcedonian Creed then was was viewed as extremely important. And I've forgotten to turn my phone off. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, so let's let's dive in and see what they do uh, with uh, with Christology. And I'm going to follow it uh, fairly closely. So if you have the outline of the of the eighth chapter of the confession, it pleased God. This is section one, in His eternal purpose, to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, His only begotten Son, to be the mediator between God. And man. Now let me pause there. Uh, there's, a, there's a reference here to something that's um, in eternity, uh, before time, before creation. Uh, there is a choosing of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, but there's a, a, a choosing of him to be the mediator um, between God and man. Now the previous chapter in the confession, chapter 7, is all about the covenant and, and covenant... Um, theology uh, was kind of developing in the 17th century and uh, this is a reference to, to something that would develop even more after, after the Westminster Confession that the, understanding, that the understanding of redemption is that this is something that God has decided that this is something that God has determined it's part of the plan, the decree of God in eternity now, the interesting thing here is the reference to Jesus as, as, as God's only begotten Son. God meaning here the Father. Um, his only begotten Son. Now, we've talked about this uh, in, the, in, in our classes together. Uh, only begotten. Uh, the Greek word monogonese, uh, which today, especially in the ESV, is not rendered only begotten, having, having ideas of you know, begetting, meaning generation, meaning, meaning origin. But today, monogonese is thought to mean one and only. So, so rather than a question of Jesus' origin, a question of his uniqueness. Right? So there is a there is a, a nuanced difference today as to how we think about that word, monogamous. Now, let's, let's go back to the confession, only begotten. Remember when we looked at the doctrine of the Trinity? That there are three who are, who are, who are God. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. All three of them are equally God. There's only one God, but the, but, but the attribution God belongs to three different persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what the early church came up with as they, as they talked about the doctrine of the Trinity and, and folks like uh, Tertullian and Augustine uh, talked and, and debated about the doctrine of the Trinity and, and then it came together in a creed, not the Chalcedonian Creed of 451, but an earlier creed, the Nicene Creed of 325 or the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed of 381. That creed was about the doctrine of the Trinity. Chalcedon, Chalcedon was about the doctrine of Christ, about the person of Christ. But, but 150 years before, the church, right, the universal church, the, the Catholic church, the ecumenical church, however, however you want to describe it, in a, in a creed known as the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed, Two, two words hyphenated. The Nicene Creed, actually, actually, the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed of 381, was a statement about the doctrine of the Trinity. And what they had come up with was that each person of the Trinity has a unique attribute. Each person has a unique characteristic. The Father is unbegotten the son is begotten and the Holy Spirit proceeds 
The Father is unbegotten, the Son is begotten, the Holy Spirit proceeds. Now, if you went and asked the church fathers, what in the world do you mean by that? They would have said, we've no idea. But, but it seems that that is true, that, that you can distinguish the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in a unique way. And one of the ways that the Son was distinguished from the Father, he is he is God in exactly the same way as the Father. He is, he is true God and, and very God, as we shall see in a minute. But he does have one unique characteristic, and that is he is begotten. Now, as soon as you use the word begotten, and if you use the King James Version of the Bible, for example, you, you're going to come across that phrase a lot, the only begotten. Uh, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Right? You, can, you, can, you can hear that coming out of the King James Version. When, once you use the language of begotten, what do you mean by begotten? Well, what we mean by begotten is that you know, I'm begotten of Mary and John. Those are my parents. In other words, it's a reference to my origin, but it's actually more than that. It's a reference that suggests that that Mary and David had existence before I did. Right? Well, if you apply that to Jesus, you're in big trouble. Because if you're suggesting that if Jesus is begotten, that there was a time when the Son was not, who said that? Whose mantra was it? Who said there was a time when the Son was not? S-O-N. Arius. Right? Arianism. Right? So, so the, the, the expression only begotten here opens a door. Right? The, the, there is a unique characteristic about Jesus. He is, he is begotten in a, in, the, in a way that the Father is not and in the way that the Holy Spirit is not. But as soon as you use that word begotten, you're opening a door to trouble and you've got to close that door, which is what, which is, what is going to happen in the rest of this statement. So let's, let's move on. His only begotten son to be the mediator between God and man. The prophet, priest, and king. You know, how does Christ execute the office of a prophet? And he executes the office of a prophet in revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. How does Christ execute the office of a priest in his once offering up of himself a sacrifice to um, satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us? And how does Christ execute the office of a king by subduing us to himself in ruling and defending us and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Uh, That's just the shorter catechism uh, for Jesus' prophet, priest, and king. That that little expression, prophet, priest, and king, uh, goes back to Calvin. goes back to the institutes it has a name uh, the attribution of the three offices of Jesus as prophet, priest and king of course it's Latin it's um, the, the, the munus triplex it's called it's, uh, but it's, uh, it's, uh, it's an affirmation that Jesus has three distinct offices a prophet, a priest and a king and in 1645 that was about 100 years old um, it, wasn't, it, it wasn't something that they were taking from the early church. It wasn't something they were taking from Augustine or from the creeds. They were actually taking that from something that was, relatively speaking, fairly recent. It was a century uh, in their past. But, but, but already by 1645, that's that seen as a valid and proper way to understand who Jesus is. He is our prophet, he is our priest, and he is our king. The head and savior of his church, the heir of all things, the judge of the world, uh, unto whom 
He did from all eternity give a people that he here is the Father, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. So, so we've stepped now from the person of Jesus into the work of Jesus. Right, so let's, let's move on to the second section. And, and we'll, we're going to park here for a while. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. So here's a, here's a statement about the doctrine of the Trinity. That, and, and Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. Being very and eternal God. Now what are they doing? What's the confession doing here? It's, it's, it's borrowing language that is very familiar and, and should be very familiar from the Nicene Creed, the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed, that he is very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things are made. I'm simply quoting the Nicene Creed. So, so what they're doing here is they're, they're nodding, right, in the direction of the Nicene Creed, uh, 325, 381 uh, A.D., um, uh, very and eternal God. Right? So, so in opposition to Arianism or semi-Arianism, Arianism denied the full deity of Jesus. Uh, he is God-like. Uh, he's a demigod. Uh, he, is, he has some divine-like um, properties, but he's not God in the sense that the Father is God because there was a time when the Son was not. So here, here they are. They've already opened the door by saying he's the only begotten son, but now they're trying to close this door. You can almost hear the door slamming shut because whatever you mean by begotten, and, and to be honest, I'm not sure what you mean by begotten, except it's something that belongs to Jesus and doesn't belong to the Father and the Spirit. But whatever you mean by begotten, that you can distinguish him from the Father and the Son, it doesn't mean in any way, shape, or form that he is less than the true God. He is very God and eternal God. Right? There, there, there never was a time when the Son was not. He is eternal. Right? So can you hear them slamming the door? Being cognizant here of Arianism uh, for sure. Um, let, let's move on. Uh, very and eternal God of one substance and equal with the Father. Now, they're using the word substance. And again, uh, that's the term that became the term used in the creeds of the early church. Uh, if it was in Latin, it was substantia. If it was in Greek, it was usia. So essence, substance, right? And, and, and there's meant to be uh, uh, an, an equality of meaning here, whether you use substance or essence. Now, there, there's a problem, of course, and it's, it's a very distinct problem. If you say, if you, you're talking about the divine nature of Jesus, he is God, and he's of the same substance as God. And we use the word substance as something... Something frangible, something tactile, something, something that you can touch and feel and has shape and, and mass and, and is created. That's what we think of substance. Here's substance, you think of something like this. Here's a, here's a hard substance. Uh, you think of the air as, as having substance because it's full of molecules. Right? But that's not what is meant by substance here. And, and so the term... The term is, is a term that's, that's simply meant to convey whatever, however you define God. And in this case, the Father. What, what's, what's, what is it that defines the deity? What, what's the godness of the Father? Well, whatever that is, and you can define it in terms of divine attributes, that he is omnipotent, that he is omnipresent, that he is omniscient, however you define that. He's eternal. All of those things belong to the Son too. Right? So he's of the same one substance and equal with the Father. Right? That, you hear what they're trying to do? They're trying to shut this door. Right? And, and they're trying to say, 
whatever the father is in his essence the son is too except the son has one distinct property and that property is he's the only begotten one with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof did I miss a line? I did Forget that sentence, scrub it, I need to go back up. One substance and equal with the Father did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature. Right? He has God's nature, God's substance, God's essence. So he has a divine nature, and now he has man's nature, human nature. And human nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof we talked we talked about Apollinarianism and Apollinarius suggested that Jesus was human in body but not necessarily human in mind that the divine logos dwelt in the in the place of the mind of Jesus it's a little more complicated than that but that'll do for now so, so, so here's the confession saying, whatever you define, however you define a human being, man, in terms of his body, in terms of his mind, in terms of his psyche, in terms of human emotions, in, in, in terms of frailty, weakness, everything except for sin, however you define man, like Adam in the Garden of Eden. Jesus took that human nature with all the common infirmities thereof. All the essential properties and common infirmities thereof. So he wasn't a ghost. He wasn't a spirit. Right? He wasn't a shaman. He wasn't, he wasn't, uh, he wasn't ether. He wasn't, he wasn't something that was that was human in body but, but not in mind, or human in body but didn't have human emotions or affections, didn't have a human psychology. H however you define what is essential to being a human being, body and soul, Jesus took that. Right? He has a human body and a human soul. Or if you like, a human body and a human mind. Or if you like, a human body and a human rationality. A human way of thinking. In addition to his divine nature, he has, he has this human nature. Yet without sin. So an affirmation here of the absolute sinlessness of Jesus that you can be a human being and be sinless right without sin being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary and, 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 and now something that's a little edgy it was a little edgy in 1645 for sure of her substance Of her substance. That in the conception of Jesus in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit took something of Mary. Right? You, you can define it in a way that the divines would never have dreamt of defining it in terms of 23 chromosomes or, a, or, a, or an egg. Right? That, the, that the female egg was Mary's egg. It had Mary's DNA. Right? It had genetic markers that, that traced the trajectory of Mary's ancestry. So that means, right? So here are the divines saying, half of the DNA, and I'm not speaking accurately I'm speaking as a lay 
person to folks who have PhDs in this stuff, so, so forgive me, but, but, but allow me to do this just for now. Half of, half of the DNA here is Mary's. You know, CSI folk could come and, and, and they, could, they could take a sample of, of some, some, some DNA of Jesus and they could, they could trace it. Yes, he's related to Mary. You know, they, they do it in 40 minutes because that's, that, that's how long a CSI program lasts. We take out all the advertisements. It's a 40-minute it's a thing. So in 40 minutes, they could, yes, it's done. He's, he is Mary's son. He looks like Mary. You know, he probably did look like Mary. Same jawbone structure, eyes, I mean... You know, we're at the stage now where, where just a few dots on the face and you can be identified. Right? Scanners can trace through a crowd of people going through a terminal and they can, they can pick you out just by little dots on your face. It's, 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 it can be that accurate or that different. And yet we're all the same. I mean, you know, you try to draw, how many different human faces could you draw? You know, a dozen, 15? Shift a bone, shift a line here and there, but but we're all we're all individuals, so we can identify. I mean, sometimes you know we have a what's it called a, a doppelganger. We have a we have a lookalike, you know, and somebody has seen us somewhere we, we've never been, and 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 they're absolutely convinced it was you. So you have this double out there somewhere. But uh, anyway, let me get back to the <laughs> plot line here. Of her substance, ex Maria. absolutely rooting the humanity of Jesus in Mary. Now, they're not saying anything about um, the perpetual virginity of Mary. Uh, um, I Parthenos, uh, the doctrine of perpetual virginity was, uh, was around in the 4th century. Certainly around in the 5th century. Uh, but that's not what they're saying. They're not, and the perpetual virginity of Mary is not the issue here. They're, they're not saying absolutely anything at all here. But the Immaculate Conception and, and the Immaculate Conception is, is a doctrine about Mary, not about Jesus. It's it's because of if 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 he is from Mary, how is he then without original sin? That's the question. So, the Catholic Church uh, in 1854, I think. Uh, it's as recent as that uh, propounded Pope Pius the um, ninth. Let me let me let me stab at that. Pope Pius the ninth, eighteen fifty-four, I think. The doctrine of the Immaculate Conception of Mary. That's not what they're saying. All they're saying here is uh, uh, they're not saying anything about Mary. Just that she is the one who provides material. Um, not the Y chromosome, but, uh, but she is the one who provides material uh, for the DNA of Jesus. So, so absolute aff- affirming uh, of her substance. Now, so that two whole, perfect, distinct natures, two whole, perfect, distinct natures, a divine nature, a human nature. Uh, do you remember last week in the Chalcedonian Creed, uh, it, gave, uh, it gave four words, um, in, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, I think are the four words in the uh, Chalcedonian Creed. Uh, two whole, perfect, distinct natures, a divine and a human nature. The Godhead and the manhood were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. Uh, we talked last week about two heresies. One was Nestorianism. Nestorius, I think history has been very unkind to Nestorius in all likelihood, but Nestorianism propounded that there are two 
persons, that Jesus' divine nature and human nature were so separated in Nestorianism as to suggest two persons. Right? What we have here is one person and two natures. So it's a statement against Nestorianism. Then last week we had the heresy known as Eutychianism, and Eutychianism is what? Nestorianism is two persons, Eutychianism is one nature, right? A confusion of the two natures, like what was the chemical reaction thing? I was trying to get it last week and then, and then I, couldn't, I couldn't get it, but you know, you, you pour one chemical into another chemical and then you've got a third thing, right? A tertium quid. It's neither one or the other. It's... it's it, it, it's a composition, it's a, it's a chemical change. Well, what, what the confession is doing is simply nodding in the direction of Chalcedon. That's all they're doing. They're saying, we are not reinventing the wheel here. The church for over a thousand years has confessed the Chalcedonian creed that Jesus has two natures, a divine nature and a human nature, but those two natures are united not by confusing the natures or separating the natures but in one person in one person which person right which person is very god and very man one person two natures which person is very god divine nature very man human nature, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. But there's only one he. There's only one him. But there aren't two he's. There's only one self-consciousness in Jesus. But there's a and it gets a little tricky There's, because, because this is altogether unique there's a consciousness in Jesus of his divine nature there's a consciousness of his human nature but there's only one self consciousness there's only one he there's only one him right, so this is, this is the Westminster Confession simply bowing in the direction of Chalcedon of, uh, of 451 two natures one person in, well, in hypostatic union. Now, hypostasis is just a Greek word that, that is meant to translate the Latin word personae, person. Actually, it probably didn't do that. And there's, this is one of those stories that, that, that in the debate they're, they're lost in translation because you know, in all likelihood, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing thing. Uh, you take somebody like Augustine. Augustine, one of the greatest theologians of the church. Um, he probably didn't speak any Greek whatsoever. Right? I'm, I'm, I'm persuaded by reading the biographies that Augustine did not know any Greek. Didn't, didn't read Greek, didn't write in Greek, didn't, didn't converse in Greek, his, his theology is done entirely in Latin. And I think in the debates between the Western and Eastern Church, there, there is a confusion as to what one side is saying and what the other side is saying. And, and sometimes in the spats, and there are some wonderful theological spats um, that take place uh, over, over Christology, um, it's, it's lost in translation. But for, for the for the Westminster divines, when they, say, when they say which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, what, what they're advocating is what we call the hypostatic union. That, that the, the union of the two natures, they, they find that unity, they find that, that, that fellowship, that communion, if you like, in one person. There's only one he with two natures. Now let's go on, section 3. The Lord Jesus, in his human nature, thus united to the divine, 
was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure, having in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, in whom it pleased the Father that all fullness should dwell, to the end that being holy, harmless, undefiled, and full of grace and truth, he might be thoroughly furnished to execute the office of a mediator and surety, which office he took not unto himself, but was thereunto called by his Father, who put all power and judgment into his hand and gave him commandment to execute the same. Right? In his divine nature, he already has all this authority, but this, it's speaking now of Jesus as the mediator, as the God-man, as, as the one who is both God and man in hypostatic union. He executes now the office of a mediator. And then, if you turn over the page to section 7, all of a sudden, this, this rather interesting, uh, and perhaps if you want to hear last week, somewhat obscure statement uh, emerges. Christ in the work of mediation, right? in, in other words, as the God-man, as the one in two natures and one person, Christ in the work of mediation acts according to both natures, by each nature doing that which is proper to itself. Right? So, so um, you, 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 have to, you have to maintain the, the, the separation, the distinctness of the two natures. Right? So what we've been saying is that the, that the human nature of Jesus doesn't doesn't plug into the divine nature. When Jesus is in trouble, he doesn't, he doesn't get a little bit of, of omnipotence from his divine nature. When he needs an answer to a question, he, he doesn't plug into his divine nature to get some, 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 some knowledge um, that, he, that his human nature does not have. So each nature acts according to that nature. The divine nature is omnipotent, it's omniscient, it knows everything, it, it's present everywhere, it's outside of space and time. The human nature is limited in knowledge, finite in knowledge, located in one zip code, in one place at one time, is capable of pain and death. But that human nature is so human that it can die. That to all intents and purposes, from a human point of view, he can be dead. The divine nature can never die. The, the human nature can and does die. He is pronounced dead. But there's only one he. By reason of the unity of the person, right, the hypostatic union, there's only one he. By reason of the unity of the person, that which is proper to the nature, to one nature, is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature. Now, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's a little tricky. What on earth are they talking about? Well, look at the proof text, number 38. It's a classic proof text. Proof text. What's being spoken about here, and if you, if, you wanna, if you want some Latin, you've got some more here. Communicato idiomatum, uh, the communion of properties. That's the issue here. Look at, uh, look at number 38, and uh, what does it say? And you're going to have to tell me what it says, because I don't have page 38. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, it's Acts 20 and 28. Take heed, therefore, this is Paul. Uh, speaking to the Ephesian elders, he's about to go off to Jerusalem. Uh, in all likelihood, never to see the Ephesian elders again. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. Now, God doesn't have blood. The human nature of Jesus has blood, right? But, but God, the divine nature, doesn't have blood. So, so the God here is the person, it is the he. He has blood. 
He doesn't have blood in his divine nature. He has blood in his human nature. So, so what is true? What is true of one nature is attributable to the person. You can't attribute what's true of one nature to the other nature. Now, the classic example of of this is the Reformation, and it's the story of Luther, and especially of Lutherans. Uh, following Luther in the debate on um, this is my body hoc est corpus meum what does that mean? what does his mean? this is my body you know hoc est corpus meum hocus pocus that's where it comes from abracadabra you say some words in Latin and, and you've got You've got the blood of Jesus. You've got the body of Jesus. And hence, in traditional Catholicism, there, there was a great deal of concern. About, you know, once, once you had consecrated that bread and, and transubstantiation had taken place, now you've got the body of Jesus. It's not as crass as you think. There's a difference between, between form and substance here. And, and it... it it looks like bread and it tastes like bread and it feels like bread, but actually it's the body of Jesus. But what if it drops on the floor and what if a mouse comes and eats it and then you've got the body of Jesus running in the rafters? Right, right. So, th- so this, this consecrated bread has to be put into a tabernacle and that tabernacle has to be locked because it's consecrated bread. Well, Luther stepped away from that, but he didn't step away sufficiently according to the Westminster divines and more particularly according to Calvin. Um, because what, what Luther said, that Jesus' body, right? if, if, you say, if, you say, if you say, as, as Luther did, that the physical body of Jesus is in or with or by or under the bread, in, in, some, in some form or fashion, it is attached to that to that bread, and that bread is in Rome, and it's in Paris, and it's in London, and it's, it's all over Europe. So the physical body of Jesus is, is present in more than one location. What, 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 what have you done? Calvin said that, that isn't just a confused doctrine of the Lord's Supper, that's a confused doctrine of Jesus. Because you're attributing the property of one, of one nature, the human nature, to the divine nature, or in the Lord's Supper, you're doing the opposite. You're attributing the property of the divine nature, ubiquity, right? being present everywhere. That's a property of Jesus' divine nature. He's present everywhere. But you're attributing that to the human body of Jesus. And, and that... Calvin said about Luther's doctrine of the supper was a confusion of this very principle that is being enumerated here in chapter 8 and section 7 of the Westminster Confession. You're you're attributing the property of one nature to the other nature. That's a no-no. You can't do that. But you can attribute the property of either nature to the person, to the he, because there is only one he well questions of course there are questions lots of questions um, it, it, it's, it's fascinating the depth and degree to which the, the Westminster Divines um, felt it necessary to, to include here what, what is a fairly common mistake among Christians and that mistake is made, you know, this, this section 7, that mistake is usually made, I think, when, when you suggest that the human nature of Jesus didn't know everything. Didn't know everything. Right, as soon as you say, as soon as you suggest to another Christian that the human mind of Jesus was limited in knowledge. If, if, if I say to you that there is no reason whatsoever to believe that Jesus, in his human nature, knew the formula for benzene, which is what? C6H6. 
Right? There's no reason whatsoever to assume that the human mind of Jesus was aware of that, or that he had ever, that he ever, that he would know what you're talking about if you said the word Gollum to him. Lord of the Rings. Come on. That would mean nothing to him. Now, I think, if, I think that statement that I've just made makes a lot of Christians uneasy. Because they default into thinking that because he's divine, he knows everything. Right? And what you've done is you've confused the natures. That's how important the divine's thought, getting this rather complicated statement in section 7, was. That, 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 we, that we need here to make sure that we don't compromise the nature. If you compromise the human nature of Jesus, he can't be my savior. And if he's in a tight spot and he can recourse to his divine nature, he, he's, not, he's not my substitute anymore. But he has access to something that I don't have access to. Right? And he has, he has to be man. And he has to be God. And you can't compromise or confuse those two natures. It was for the purposes of ensuring our salvation that the divines thought that that was so very important to affirm or reaffirm. Because it's actually a statement that emerges in the Chalcedonian Creed. So next week, uh, I need you to come with questions for the following week. But next week... I want to see a table littered with questions. Are you going to ask a question? Probably. No, I, I mean right now. Oh, no. No, okay. You looked as if you were about to ask me a question. Um, Facebook, Twitter account, First Press, web, First Press website, Jay Wingard. If you've got technical questions, you can ask him. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we, we thank you. We thank you for the gift of your son, We thank you for our Lord Jesus. We love him though we barely, barely understand who he is. Lord Jesus, you you came into this world and you assumed a full humanity without sin. A human body and human affections, a human mind. You, You know what it is to live by faith and not to know what tomorrow may bring, to exercise faith, to, to read the scriptures, to read the prophecies, to be upheld and strengthened by the Holy Spirit and, and gifted by the Holy Spirit, and to be our substitute, to be the last Adam. Father, we, we thank you for this wonderful and extraordinary gift that he died for us and in our place. And that with a view to redeeming us from all of our sins. So bless us as we, as we try to understand and bring together all that you have revealed concerning your son. And we want to do so with reverence and with awe and with godly fear. So that we might love you and follow you and worship you with all our hearts and mind and strength and soul. So bless us now this evening we ask it in Jesus name. Amen.